Welcome to Bibliophiles, a podcast for lit lovers. In today's episode, the Center for Lit team continues its quest to discover the great ideas in books of every description, ancient classics to fresh bestsellers, epic poems to bedtime stories. We're glad you came along. We hope you find this discussion as provocative and inspiring as the books themselves. Want to join the great conversation? Stay tuned. You've come to the right place. Well, hello, listeners. Thank you for tuning in once again to Bibliophiles. I am your host, Ian, coming to you today with an episode about what we are reading. I believe today, Mom is on the hot seat. Isn't that the case, Mom? That is the case, and I have to say that I have been anxiously anticipating this, this moment when I'm on the hot seat for what I'm reading now, what we're reading now. The reason for that is that I always have a lot of books going at one time. And so I was flummoxed as I tried to decide which of the many books that litter my house uh, that I'm midway through am I going to pick up today and talk about. And so guess what, guys? I decided to bring the list. (laughs) Of course you did. The whole list. Oh, this is going to be beautiful. Okay, so here's the deal. I I don't really anticipate that I'm going to talk about all of them. It's an impossibility, a logical impossibility. But what I thought is that wait 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 before before you before you you launch it how many of them are there <laughs> that's what I well, want to know I, you you have to know that I I reduced it I mean there are more than the list that I made that I, <laughs> here's here's the I thing I don't care I would get ballpark give us a ballpark I love that a ballpark is possible in this scenario give me a ballpark okay well I listed six um, to mention today not to talk about but and to that's mention not and the total that's not the total no and this is why I want to talk about this because how do you ever anticipate finishing anything. Well, that, that's what I wanted to talk about. Um, there are lots of different styles of readers, and I thought it would be good for everybody to know what kind of reader I am, um, because maybe this will resonate with some. When I was coming along, I thought that good readers read one book at a time, and they started at the beginning, and they read all the way through, and then they thoughtfully went back to the beginning and started over again and read all the way through and inscribed it, <laughs> and, you know, they, they really studied the book to the bottom, before they started anything else. And that's just not the stuff I'm made of. (laughs) (laughs) Never could quite pull that off. That's just not the way I roll. So what I do instead is I pick up books. I'm, um, you know, I'm led by my own curiosity and my tastes and the mood of the moment. And I usually have a multitude of books going at one time because, you know, it depends on what I'm interested in at the moment. I'm delight directed. I think that's that's totally fascinating. And you pass that on to me. Uh, I do the same thing. I have several books going at once. If I have any books going at all, there are periods of time where I don't. But if, if I'm reading something, I'm usually reading more than one something. But that puts me in mind, um, what sort of readers are the rest of us? Just so that if someone listening to the podcast today isn't your kind of reader, they don't feel left out in the cold. Yeah. Let's go around the room really quickly by way of introducing everyone and see what sort of readers they are. Emily, what kind of a reader are you? And welcome. <laughs> Hi. Uh, well, I am a perfectionist, and so I start at the front matter, and I read the introductions, and then I read every single word, and then I read the end matter. Including the acknowledgments. <laughs> oh, the that matter. is hilarious. And then do you start she at the beginning and read it again? You mean the next time I read it? Yeah, you, you do right the whole right thing. Away. Do you do it right away? Do you read it, reread it right from the start as soon as you've finished? No, not usually. Um, but... I usually have a couple kinds of books going. Well, 
I don't have a plethora like you guys, but I have like one fiction fun read mm-hmm. and then like whatever I'm reading to teach and then like one nonfiction. Yeah, she I can back her up on that. She spends coffee time in the morning going through and reading a chapter or two of each one of her like three current reads, which is, I don't have to tell you, adorable. <laughs> That's cute, yeah. So, okay, so moving on then to Megan. Megan, hello and welcome. What sort of a reader hello. are you? Um, well, I feel a little overawed by all you guys. I mean, the fact that mom assumes that when you read a book, you obviously turn it over and read it again. I'm not sure I've ever done that in my whole life. Not to say I'm not a rereader because I am, but not immediately. I mean, you read it for fun and then you go do something else, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> run around the block or do something, eat some food. I don't know. If I come back to it, you know, like months later, maybe reread it if it was a particularly choice piece of fiction. (laughs) So for all you easy readers out there, I'm like you. I just read for fun. (laughs) So, um, yeah, and I identify with Emily, too. One read at a time? No, no. I mean, I usually have multiple pieces of fiction going on at once. I don't read a lot of nonfiction, though. I should probably pick that up. God, no. I, well, I'm probably not gonna, so. I know, right? Uh, I read yeah. one piece of fiction that's like in my wheelhouse. It's interesting to me and a little bit challenging. And then I teach elementary, so I'm usually reading some kids' books. Oh, man, that's a great setup. What a good combination. I know. Keeping it real. Okay, so, so Dad, you're taking a break from hosting today, as you usually do when we do What Are We Readings, which means I get to target you instead of you targeting me, which is kind of fun. Sounds great. Uh, hello and welcome. Thank and you. what kind of a reader are you? I am... Uh, by the standards being erected here on this particular episode of Bibliophiles, I am a bad reader because I, and evidently what that means is I only have one book going at this at the same time ever. And frankly, I only ever read it at one time during the day with rare exceptions. I read it before I fall asleep at night while lying in my bed for is it or is it 10 or 15 usually, minutes or maybe 30 minutes on the outside. And what'd you say, Ian? Is it or is it not usually P.G. Wodehouse? <laughs> well, on occasion it is, yes. Um, <laughs> I tend to read for pleasure and am um, and just not a very impressive specimen when it comes to my reading career. I don't, I'm not do- doing a lot of heavy lifting usually, although sometimes the things that give me pleasure are a little strange to some people. I mean, one of my favorite books that I've read in the last year has been the commentary on Romans by the theologian Karl Barth, which is some, you know, that's some thick uh, going. But I do like um, P.G. Woodhouse just as much for uh, for a variety of reasons. But the truth is, here's the thing. I read uh, for a handful of minutes every night before I go to bed, and I'm always just working on the one book. And here's another thing. I don't have a million books going at once, and if I don't like the one I'm in, I quit. <laughs> I love it. And it's fair. It. So you've only you got see, so many hours in a day, you know, in like, a life. For instance, right this minute, I'm in the middle of Charles Dickens' Hard Times. And I'm having a hard Which time. You up because you thought it would be fun. <laughs> 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 yes. Well done. Oh, well done. That's this is beautiful. not a very good story. I don't like it. And I'm I'm toying with the idea of giving up in the middle and moving on to something more more interesting. Dickens has finally failed you. You love Dickens. I love Dickens. I'm a huge Dickens fan, yeah. but this book is just not winding my watch at all. That's interesting. That is astonishing. So, anyway, I, I probably didn't uh, make a very good showing of myself here. No, on actually, Files, you know what? This no, has been perfect. really encouraging. I, I want to hear, um, well, 
I guess I did here. What I'm saying is, what I mean to say, and I'm not saying very well, is that this is really encouraging to me. Because Why is it that? sounds like it sounds like, with the exception of dad, that we're all kind of scattered to the four winds, always working on more than one thing at a time. Yeah, and dad's oh, really right. focused. <laughs> dad's no, no. Well, that's what we mean. I mean mom's, the, mom's the person who set this whole conversation about standards of readers up in the first place, dad. And if you'll remember, well, I didn't, no, the no, main no. qualification of the good reader was that there was one book happening at once, which indicates focus. Oh, okay, I now, see what you mean. Yeah, yeah. That I just sense. want to qualify. I want to qualify here and say that I'm not setting the standard. This is the standard that I had set for me when I was coming along, and I've right. labored under it and been unable to actually focus in that way to okay. just... Objection sustained. Okay, so I've got all these okay. books going at once, and I, I just kind of wrote down a smattering of what I saw on my nightstand and what is sitting next to my chair in the living room where I go every morning, much like Emily, to have my black tea and my little wake up time with, um, you know, with my book in hand. So here's what it is. Um, it's, I just took six, there are more, but from this list, I've got What Came From the Stars by Gary Schmidt, a work of juvenile fiction. The Supper of the Lamb by Robert Farrar Capon, um, a work of theology and culinary arts, an interesting combo. Um, a work of, of essays by C.S. Lewis called On Stories. A biography called The Fellowship, The Literary Lives of the Inklings, J.R.R. Tolkien, C.S. Lewis, Owen Barfield, and Charles Williams by Philip and Carol Zaliski. Charles Dickens, Martin Chuzzlewit, of course. And a work by Frederick Beekner called The Sacred Journey. So there it is, my wow. kaleidoscopic view of my own personal interests <laughs> and the litter that is my house. <laughs> so that that list has the has two distinctions in my book. Number one, it's six books long. And number two, there's at least one that I've never heard of. Which one so, have you never well heard done. of? The last one. The Sacred Journey. Oh, good, because that's the one that I really want to talk about. I oh, want to talk excellent. about that. So on my chair where I start my days... I always have my Bible and my journal and then some book by a Christian author to help me basically in my contemplation of the permanent things. And Frederick Buechner's The Sacred Journey is a book like that. It's a kind of spiritual memoir of the author's early life. And it was given to me by a good friend very recently. And as the title suggests, um, The Sacred Journey, right? Um, he traces the formative events of his early life, which involve his most early family relationships and also the earliest events he can remember that so shaped his future, which includes his father's suicide and his mother's and his grandmother's responses to it, not to mention his own, um, with an eye to the sovereign meaning in his own life. And... Um, there's, there's a lot of theology in this book. Buechner, he spells his name B-U-E-C-H-N-E-R, and I want to call him Buechner, but he tells us, um, he pronounces his name Buechner. So Buechner is a Presbyterian minister and a writer, and I think it's really appropriate that his books are theological in nature. Um, his interest is in how the God that's revealed in the scriptures has revealed himself in his own life, how the reality of the God of the gospel helps him to make sense of the details of his own experiences. So I, I would probably call his work a theological memoir. Mm. Um, mm. He's been nominated for the Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Award. For this book? 
um, for multiple books. He's oh. written a, a multitude of books. Okay. And the back flap of his own book records that he has been honored by the American Academy and Institute of Arts and Letters. So wow. See, she reads Black Matter too. Yeah, she, she does. Yeah, I noticed that. I do read Black Matter. <laughs> I'm interested in who is this um, that I'm spending my time with. But yeah, this That's particular awesome. book, I have another one that I haven't started yet. But um, By the same one, guy? By the same guy, yeah. And In fact, after I finished this first one, I thought, I want to read everything I can get my hands on by this guy. He's actually still living, um, but I, I, love, I love his use of the language, his appreciation um, of, of words, mm. and um, he's very philosophical. His works are really meditative. They're full of gorgeous imagery, and um, they're, they, they, they're so much rich intentional interpretive meaning. I love that because mm. right now we're living in this postmodern slash post-Christian kind of age where there's this nihilistic impulse, right? Um, nothing means anything unless we ascribe meaning to it and yada, yada, yada. And I just, I read books that are, that are current, but the majority of them leave me feeling really sad and really empty. And this work um, flies in the face of all of that without ever wincing at the, the darker realities of life. Mm. I mean, I mentioned that in this first book I read by him, he, he targets um, the, the pivotal experience of his father's suicide, which was so shaping in his early years. Um, and he, he's very straightforward about it. So, you know, he manages to do this with this kind of candid self-knowledge. The work is really free of morbid egocentrism, which is what sometimes you find when you look at memoirs. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. That kind of contemplative um, tone can sometimes, when when you're dealing with autobiography, become really morbid and very um, self-centered. I was just thinking, uh, not to interrupt, but that re- something you said reminds me of a of an autobiography I recently read that gave me that very feeling. Um, it was uh, uh, Wild, I think it was called. Oh yeah, yeah. About the woman Cheryl who Cheryl Strayed. Strayed. Strayed? Yeah. About the woman who took the Which I think is a funny the name. solo backpacking trip yeah, down the um, Pacific Crest Trail. Yeah, her name Strayed. Oh, she 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 changed her name to Strayed. Oh, she did. Okay. Yeah. I um, that was but, kind of but ironic. That, by the by, about the fifth or sixth chapter, it started to be the tone of it was very self um, indulgent, yes. and and it was mm. it, it, the attitude being this book is about me, and mm-hmm. so we're going to talk about me. And you mm-hmm. could tell she was really enjoying, you know, talking about her. Kind of that was okay. sort of the tone of it. And <laughs> well, so you're saying you don't get that feeling that. here. He avoids that. He he is very straightforward. He writes with um, he he seems to really know himself, but. It's almost like he's helped, He's wanting to present his own account in order to talk about perspective, the kind of perspective that his faith brings to the table in terms of um, interpreting all of the things that have gone on with him, the story of his life, so to speak. Um, and he does this, I think, as a like an offering to the general public. Um, a lot yeah. of it is very intensely personal, but... There's not a dwelling on himself for the sake of himself. It's for the sake of uh, the community that he offers the story. So that there's the suggestion that um, the the sacredness is present in everyone's story. Mm. And so he's kind of showing us how to think about our experiences 
he's giving us lenses to look through, but it's not didactic in any way. Um, yeah. Anyway, I'll leave it at that. Um, in addition to this, this kind of um, sacredness that he sees in life, he talks about reading as a child, um, suggesting that the books seemed endless because mm. he thinks maybe when he was a child, he read more slowly. And then he offers a kind of apology for literature, um, the imaginative kind of literature, novels. And I think it's significant, not only because it partakes of my own reason for reading, but also because it helps to explain the nature of Beekner's own works. So I just want to read a little bit of that, if you'll indulge me. By all means, let's have the apology for novels on bibliophiles, shall we? (laughs) (laughs) It seems like that might fit, yeah. Okay, let's see. Um, So he's writing about uh, a work by Frank Baum, L. Frank Baum, an Oz book that really struck him as a child in which there's a character named Rinkatink. Some of you might actually um, have read the work yourselves. Okay, Um, I'll start here. Rinkatink was a very vulnerable man, silly and unstable in numberless ways, but in his fatness, he seemed also somehow solid and substantial, eccentric and yet reliable with his slippered feet planted heavily on the ground and his heart in the right place. Like a tree that has been blown for years from so many directions by so many winds that none of them can ever quite blow it down, he seemed strong in his very vulnerability. In his capacity to laugh and weep at the drop of a hat, and in general to make a fool of himself, he seemed wise with the wisdom of a child who sees better than his elders that the world is indeed something to laugh and weep about, and who, more realistically than the rest of us, accepts his own foolishness as part of the givenness of things. And he goes on to say that um, really fearful things happen to him in the course of the book, but he always manages to come out, uh, he says, riding out of them on the back of his faithful goat, Bilbul. The world can wound him and scare the daylights out of him, but never, you feel, can it destroy him. It is only the world of the fairy tale, to be sure, but nonetheless he has overcome that world, and I have remembered him with admiration and love ever since. In different guises, though always fat, and under different names, Rinkatink has haunted me always. In gaiters and spectacles, he reappeared in my boyhood reading as Mr. Samuel Pickwick of Pickwick Papers and in Toga and Laurel Wreath as the Emperor Claudius in Robert Graves' I, Claudius, and Claudius the God. When I was about 14, to jump ahead a few years, I met another version of him in the pages of G.K. Chesterton's The Man Who Was Thursday, where he appears as the character of Sunday, the huge, ebullient, antic leader of a group of supposed anarchists, who only at the end of that extraordinary fantasy turns out to have been also the policeman in the dark room who secretly signed them all up to do battle against anarchy. And a few years later, still he turned up as the character of the whiskey priest in Graham Greene's novel, The Power and the Glory, where what Greene fathomlessly conveys is that the power and glory of God are so overwhelming that they can shine forth into the world through even such a one as this seedy, alcoholic little failure of a man, who thus, less by any virtue of his own than by the sheer power of grace within him, becomes a kind of saint at the end just as Rinkatink, the plump and absurd, ends up vanquishing all the dark powers mustered against him. And as Mr. Pickwick bumbles his way through one misadventure after another to become one of the great heroes of English literature, and as Claudius the stammerer and reputed half-wit turns out to be one of the shrewdest and most effective of the Caesars, 
And as Sunday, that billowing, zany powerhouse of a man reveals his true identity finally by saying, I am the Sabbath. I am the peace of God. Nothing was more remote from my thought at this period than theological speculation. Except for Green's, these books were all childhood or early boyhood reading. But certain patterns were set. Certain rooms were made ready, so that when years later I came upon St. Paul for the first time and heard him say, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. I had the feeling that I knew something of what he was talking about. Wow. Something of the divine comedy that we are all of us involved in. Something of grace. Okay, I... Um, that was beautiful. I think Goodness. that that is that such gorgeous. a beautiful apology for imaginative no literature, kidding. don't you? Yes. And the book is full of those, those little gems. Um, you know, he, he talks about why to read. He talks about words themselves. Um, and he talks about time. It's a really philosophical, um, philosophical kind of a work. He divides this particular um, autobiography up into uh, chapters that he entitles Once Below Time, and he considers uh, his childhood in, in that chapter, um, the time before innocence is lost, and then Once Upon a Time, uh, in which he talks about an event that gets time going for him, and that would be the event of his father's suicide, and then Once Beyond Time, making sense of the stuff of our lives from the eternal perspective. Oh, yeah. And oh, his idea about time and our relationship to it, in particular in, ch in childhood, he calls it the Eden um, of our time, our childhood, the time before we're actually measuring out our time as though it were a commodity. Mm. Um, he says it like this, the time before God told Adam and Eve them that the day would come when they would surely die with the result that from that point on, they made clocks and calendars for counting their time out like money and never again lived through a day of their lives without being haunted somewhere in the depths of them by the knowledge that each day brought them closer to the end of their lives. Is that not an intriguing idea? Mm. That our childhood, the time in our childhood, you know, all of us look back on our childhood as this, these endless days of wonder and pleasure. And even in the, the sorrow, it was unique in childhood because uh, it because was of just timelessness. Yeah. yeah, there was this timelessness. But there's a moment that comes into all of our lives where that innocence is lost and we begin the counting, just like all the rest of um, Adam and Eve's children. Mm -hmm. Right? I just thought that was beautiful. Anyway, these are the kinds of things that you'll stumble across as you read Beekner. And um, oh, there's just a lot of wisdom, a lot to ponder in the pages of his work. Um, even his appreciation for language, um, it kind of reminded me a little bit of Gerard Manley Hopkins' understanding of um, language as a kind of living thing with, he called it inscape. Each word has an inscape. That Hopkins is the thingness did. of the thing. That's what Hopkins called it, yeah. But um, Beekner says, words not only convey something, but are something. That words have color, depth, texture of their own, and the power to evoke vastly more than they mean. That words can be used not only to make things clear, make things vivid, make things interesting, and whatever else, but to make things happen inside the one who reads them or hears them. Mm. I mean, it's just, I love his understanding of the language. So go to Beekner, 
if you should have the proclivity to do so and be delighted. I was delighted with his work. Wow. What a wow, great... That is, that is quite an apology no for, the, for the guy. My goodness. Uh, spell his last name for me, would you? It's B-U-E-C-H-N-E-R. Frederick Buechner. It looks like Buechner, but it's Buechner. And the title of this one is And the title is The Sacred Journey, A Memoir of Early Days. The Sacred Journey. So is this like a a relatively common place to start with with his work? I don't know how many many published works he has. Um, Let's see. The book flap tells me that he's the author of 30 works of fiction and nonfiction. Whoa. Goodness gracious. So if you like this, this man, there's plenty. There's plenty, yes. Listen to this. I'll leave you with this. He says this, the question is not whether the things that happen to you are chance things or God's things, because of course they are both at once. There is no Hmm. chance thing through which God cannot speak. He speaks, I believe, and the words he speaks are incarnate in the flesh and blood of ourselves and of our own footsore and sacred journeys. That's a pretty good summary of this spiritual memoir. I've got to go find this book and read it. You do. I recommend it. I'm not sure much can be added to that presentation. That was beautiful. Wrap it up for the day. What do you guys say? That was beautiful. I'm going to go read one at a time. I'll, I'll read. I'll, I'll, as soon as I finish Hard Times, I'm going to get this one. Yeah. Well, it's, it's and here. then you'll read it in 15 minute chunks before bed. Well, this it's relatively short too. It's a, uh, a little more than 100 pages, maybe 112 pages. You said you had six books going though. Can you at least give us the titles of the other ones? I did. I started that way, remember? Oh, go back and tell me again. Um, I just I just finished a Gary Schmidt uh, work of juvenile fiction called What What Came from the Stars, and that one's the story of a twelve year old um, Tommy Pepper is his name, whose world is invaded by a war in another world when a magical necklace forged by the noble Valorum in that other galaxy finds its way into his world and lands very neatly in his lunchbox. So Tommy has lost his mother very recently and is struggling with guilt associated with his mother's death and all of his emotional regrets kind of creep into the action of the story when an enemy of the Valorum, who's very intent on recovering this powerful necklace, discovers Tommy and he preys on his vulnerabilities. Um, The book's kind of pitched at 10 to 14-year-olds, I'd guess. Tommy's 12, so, you know, that's the general range here. And it's by the great Gary Schmidt, Mm -hmm. right? And and it, um, it lives up to Gary Schmidt. Uh, it's dedicated to his own son, and it sort of smacks of stories with dad. It's full of action and tension and human drama, family love, sacrifice, empathy. There's a cool sibling relationship in it. It's a really good read, exactly what I've come to expect from Schmidt. Um, it goes back and forth as the story progresses between the real world of coastal Plymouth, Massachusetts, and this kind of imaginary world of the Valorum, where the evil Omondum have overthrown the noble Valorum. Omondum, Valorum? Loving uh, this. Yeah. And they're desiring to use <laughs> the Valorum's art to control the Ethelum, the people of, of the Valorum Ethelum. world. Yes. And he, he actually creates a language, sort of like Tolkien. It's a nod to Tolkien fantasy sci-fi. So all of you Tolkien buffs, you would probably enjoy reading this one aloud to your kiddos. Some people, I think, um, in the reviews that I've read of the book, get a little tangled up in the words, but he does provide a glossary in the back, which I didn't even know was there until I turned the last page. So if you knew it was there from the beginning, it might help you. But I, I didn't need it that much because you can tell from context what these made-up words are actually there for. Right. It's fun read. 
given your recommendation of the first one, I'm pretty sure I want to read all six books that you're reading. Okay, here it is in a snapshot. Are you ready? Uh, a sentence apiece. Um, Robert Capon, a theologian who recently passed away just like a couple of years ago, I guess. Handful of years ago, yeah. He wrote Supper of the Lamb, and it proves, his book proves that every subject in life speaks to and partakes of the gospel of grace, even the culinary arts. Uh, he would say especially the culinary yeah. arts. Wit, wisdom, practicality, theology, it's got it all. Heavy cream. Read it. Um, Lewis's On Stories is a series of essays edited by his secretary, Walter Hooper, all on the subject of narrative stories and literary criticism. Martin Chuzzlewit is delightfully Dickens, a suspicious and wealthy curmudgeon accompanied by a youngish female ward not of his family. He's failing in health, and his family descends like vultures kind of circling the scene, and his namesake is bilked of his fortune and then travels to America to make his own. I'm only about, oh, I'd say 50 pages into that one, so I can't tell you much about it yet. But Except I Dickens is in true Dickensian form. Mm -hmm. And The Fellowship um, that I mentioned, the, the Inklings book. It's called The Fellowship, The Literary Lives of the Inklings, and focuses on the four big names of the Inklings. I am savoring. It's biography, and it's written in this very literate, very sparkling kind of prose. And I have to say that my vocabulary, as well as my understanding of the authors and their period in history, is expanding like wildfire as I read this <laughs> one. I mean, it's delightful. It's written by a husband and wife, uh, and they focus on how these men and their friendships have... Um, have continued to have an influence upon the culture and the imaginations of present day thinkers. So that's a really fun read as well. So there you have wow. it. Yeah. I couldn't probably go into depth in all of them because I haven't finished them all yet, but um, that gives you something to chew on. Anyway. <laughs> I'll say it's what I'm chewing on. Well, thank you for those recommendations. That was pretty phenomenal. Um, I have gotten a recommendation. I feel like generally a, what are we reading episode has more to do with, uh, with us sort of kicking around a book that we've all sort of read together in recent months. But this has been a fun one for me because I hadn't literally even heard of the author you were going to bring up. So I appreciate the recommendation. All you listeners, feel free to look up the rest of these episodes. There are uh, many such recommendations littered across the past several months. We're so grateful, as always, for your listening ears. Please don't hesitate to tell us what you think. Um, give us some comments on iTunes or wherever you listen to your episodes and tune in again next time around. Thank you so much for being here, all you Center for Lit Denizens. Until next time, happy reading. Happy, happy reading. Bibliophiles is a production of the Center for Lit Podcast Network. Find new episodes each month on the web at centerforlit.com, where you'll discover dozens of resources to equip and inspire you to participate in the great conversation, including the Pelican Society a membership program for folks who love the Center for Lit approach to all things literary. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Until next time, happy reading, everyone. <laughs>